God, thank you. Thank you for the gathering of your people here. The foretaste of what you are doing in this future and in the present. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Um, may these words be good for your purposes in my heart and mine and in the heart and mind of my friends here. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So when the invitation came from Dick, uh, from the elders through Dick to speak, also came with the option to pick the scripture. And so I thought and prayed about that. And the passage this morning is a, is a piece of uh, the Bible that I um, have sat with a long time. Uh, when I, um, early in my Christian days, this was a passage I memorized. And it's a passage that just um, catches me up. And over time, reading the conversations in the church about this passage, uh, it's unfolded more and more, and I'm sure it will even more so. Uh, so we're going to be spending time in the text, um, and some of my slides are off the screen, awesome, uh, that Amy just read. Uh, that's on page 833 in the Pew Bibles. I'm going to be looking at words by words through there a little bit, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, or if you have your own. And a key biblical truth again, uh, creation is being sustained by God. I'm supposed to remember to look in the back, too. And will be fully reconciled through Christ. My goodness, there's a lot of big thoughts in there. You know, more for than can be covered at all. So what I'm thinking is to show you um, the side roads, the conversations that are in the church along the way, um, and give you some ideas for exploring and, and praying and thinking further on these topics, Yeah. So what do you think when you see this picture? Now, we're in church, and there's an old Sunday school joke. If somebody asks you a who question in church, the answer always is Jesus. That's whose hand that is, yes? Right? But I have to tell you, this is an image. This is an image you will find widely in the environmental world. And if we ask who the hand is, they won't say Jesus. They'll say this is a, this is a message to people about the care of the earth. There's been a break. There's been a division in that thinking, and, and part of that is what I want to think with you about today. So how does God interact today with all of creation, with the other living creatures on earth, and with our planet, with all its complexity? And I really encourage you to do what I've done twice now. Uh, go back and listen to Dick's message in March about creation when he was going through the attributes of God and also his message about God's power to think about some of those ideas about God with us now and God into the future. Christians have pondered these questions over the centuries, even before, catch this please, even before current science. Christians have pondered and thought about these ideas. So what does the Bible suggest about the future of the earth and all of its living creatures? They're big and complicated questions. Let's start with three core beliefs in classic Christianity. That God has created all life on earth, God sustains all life on earth, and catch this please, through the Bible, God intends some purposeful consummation some good finale and completion for living creatures on the earth and the earth itself. 
So the message through Christ is not just for humans. Humans first, yes, as image bearers of God, but also for all of creation, for all life on earth. I've got to winnow things down here. There's a lot there. So I'm not going to be talking today, let me tell you, about the many conversations about how life started, how creation began through God. There's a lot there. And a lot of faithful, divergent conversations in the church about that. I want to step ahead to the second and third point and think with you just a bit about God's sustaining life on earth today and that end. What is the end? I want to sample some of those conversations. Um, And just to say again, as Doug did, um, even though we don't usually have discussion group in the summer, I would so welcome, after you get your coffee and visit as you need, stop by the lounge. I'm going to be there, and I would love to hear your reactions to the ideas I'm saying today, ideas that you have found. Let's, let's continue the conversation at 11. I also have a lot of resources, a couple of shelves I've amassed on this, and I'll be glad to send you my resource list, which includes clickable links, um, if you want to go deeper. Let me say why I think these topics matter. And, hey, more importantly, right, how they connect to the passage today in Colossians. So Paul's letter to this church, to the Colossians, he's urging them to have a bigger and clearer view of Jesus Christ. When we see more clearly who Jesus is, we have a bigger and better picture about who God is and how God acts in our lives and in our world. And I would say, and many of you know this, I rediscover this all the time, that this is a lifelong, ongoing refocus. We're never going to outgrow God. And God never wants us to stay in only what we learned when we were 13 or 23 or 33 or 43. God is always leading us on to see how big Christ is, how big God's work is, and how much more that means for our life, no matter what's going on. So I want to just... Cross over a reference here. Uh, John spoke to this, yes? No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So we look to Christ to see who God is and how God acts in the world, how God acts in our lives. And here's also why I think this topic matters, and I want to speak today to a lot of my friends in the environmental world where I've worked for all of my career that I was speaking today. Um... And uh, many of them want to hear what I have to say about this. So I want to speak with an ear to those who are passionate for the earth, but maybe not yet uncertain or even estranged from ideas of Jesus Christ. And I want to say that what we hold in our hearts and minds about God's ways with creation impacts how we think about God's ways with us. This is true for people who follow Jesus, This is true for people who look first in creation and say, well, there could be no God, because. It's true for us who may follow Jesus, but then we look at ideas about creation and it may change what we think about God's faithfulness, God's presence. My belief, and I think the belief of many in the church, and I would say as a core conclusion from Christianity, is that there is a view of creation that has generous grace, purpose, and hope. And this view of creation is good news to people we know. Can you hear how I have like multiple key biblical truths here? That's because I'm new at it. And these are also big ideas that could all each be 
explored further, right? But consider that we have words as Christians to speak about creation that have grace, purpose, and hope. Okay. First, before we dig into the passage, because I will spend time with the text, I want to go back to another third Sunday in July, 49 years ago. Some of you know where this is going. Sunday, July 20th, 1969. Because of that Sunday... There's a church in Houston this morning, Webster Presbyterian, which is celebrating communion, even though, you know, they usually do that first Sunday, like CBC. On that third Sunday, what happened? Well, humans stepped on the moon. Humans stepped on the moon. Apollo 11, the eagle has landed. One small step, one giant leap. With Neil Armstrong on the moon was Buzz Aldrin. He was the limb pilot, the landing pilot. And as time allows, we're going to revisit Apollo 11 at the end of the message. But I want you to consider it was only six months earlier, six months earlier, that was Apollo 8. December 24, Christmas Eve, 1968, humans first orbited the moon. NASA was checking, get this, whether this step would even work. Could we fly to the moon, go around it, and get back and have the people inside survive? It was all very uncertain. Sometimes we forget that. So Christmas Eve, Apollo 8, had a transmission back to the Earth, the most listened to and watched transmission of its time. They spoke back to the people of the Earth. Let's listen to just a portion of that. That's now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. That it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. God bless all of you on the good earth. Ancient words spoken through space back to the people of the earth. But with those words, Apollo 8 sent more than words. It sent an image, an image that had never been seen before on earth. And it was the first color image of the earth and space. It's been called the most significant environmental photo of all time. It was taken by astronaut Bill Anders, just by happen chance, really. They happened to be rotating at the same time. They were checking some things. He was snapping. We had some grainy black and white images from satellites, but this was, this was different. I've got a point here. Earthrise. Looking back now, 50 years, people who study these things say that this image helped to shift, helped to shift the view of people on earth about the earth. 
and about our responsibility to care for creation. Just 18 months later was the first Earth Day, 1970. During Nixon's administration, an amazing outflow of new ideas and new ways to protect creation under President Nixon, clean water, clean air, clean up of Superfund, endangered species. We set boundaries knowing human sin and selfishness on who could use what and how much. And our ideas about environmental protection were then copied around the world. The United States was the leader on this. Bill Anders said this, we went all the way to the moon and what we really discovered was the earth. It's extraordinary, right? Just extraordinary. But I want to I go from here to my text, and, and what am I doing with that? A key focus of the entire book of Colossians is all about a bigger view of the person and work of Jesus Christ. With Jesus Christ, people on our planet saw the very image of God. I love David Deal's teaching uh, two weeks ago, I think, on the Incarnation. We saw the very image of God in person, in human flesh, and this transformed how they understood God and God's mission, and it continues to do for us when we return our focus back to Jesus. So I want to sample just first some key passages in Colossians and then dig in a bit deeper in a moment. Uh, and I'm talking about creating, sustaining, redeeming. And I, I submit to you that in this passage this morning, you will find all three. You will find all three, both for creation and for the church. The sun is the image of the invisible God. All things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. And I'm highlighting all things in yellow there for a reason. Colossians 1.17, that incredible pivot verse you'll see in the passage, before all things, in him all things hold together. And just to note, I'm reading from NIV, and I love the translation that Amy read earlier for us. Um, and both of them bring out different nuances in the, in the Greek text. Colossians 19 and 20 in chapter 1. To reconcile to himself all things. To reconcile to himself all things. Now, when I first read this passage... I didn't pick this up, but that phrase, all things, is echoed through the New Testament. It's echoed through the New Testament world in documents that are not in the Bible, documents of everyday life and poets and other writers. It's a phrase that clearly carries the weight of all creation, all things, all created life and the material world itself. That's the use of this text, and I'll submit to you that it's pretty clear there if you look at the context, too, for in him all things were created, all things have been created through him and for him. We can see that elsewhere. We see that in John. Through him all things were made, all things. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In Hebrews, other parallel passages, right, that Jesus Christ upholds all things. And finally in Ephesians, and that first chapter of Ephesians is another great one from memory and meditation, uh, another wonderful upwelling of the Spirit through Paul about who Jesus is. And Christ will, when the times have come to their fulfillment, bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. And lastly, this, for from him and through him to, through him and in him are all things, all things, all things. To him be glory forever. But I want to stop before we go much further 
and talk about these two words, redeeming and reconciling. I had a different key biblical truth, and I changed it, as Elfie can testify. Uh, we think of Christ as, as creator, sustainer, and redeemer, yes? And this is true. But when we talk about creation, I want to suggest to you that reconciling is a better word than redeeming. We only have to look a little earlier in Colossians to find a reference to redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's rescued us and brought us into the kingdom he loves in 113. And I want to say that reconciling might be a better, more biblically accurate word for God's work in creation. And here's why. Unlike humans, the earth and its creatures, they did not, they do not willingly make moral choices. They don't choose against God. Instead, the Bible keeps pointing to humans' disconnection from God. Human sin, in the Christian language, as damaging creation itself, its well-being, its wholeness, its shalom. And we can't talk about a Christian view of creation without talking what Christians mean by the fall. This historic, this profound, this disastrous disconnection that happened between humans and God. There are many, many, many conversations, books and websites and videos about the question, how did the fall affect creation? And that's that deep and ongoing conversation. I want to uh, tell you about a man, uh, Gary Spaeth. Uh, he started the Natural Resources Defense Fund. He was dean of Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Law. He was on a BBC program uh, a few years ago talking about the, uh, the struggle to take care of creation and the environmental world. Uh, he says, I used to think the top global environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought with 30 years of good science we could address these problems, but I was wrong. And I've had up here already the quote, how his quote ends, the top environmental problems of selfishness, greed, apathy, and the need for a spiritual and cultural transformation. It doesn't mean we don't still work for a good earth all that we can, and I'll say why I think that's important, but the underlying problem is the heart of people, yeah, and that need for transformation. Bible has a clear-eyed view of that problem. The Bible has a clear-eyed view of a solution that is already underway, as a foretaste here to be fully completed when Jesus brings all things together. The foretaste here are the children of God. As we change, as God's spirit moves through people to help them do the right thing through Jesus Christ, I believe that's one way, push back, talk afterwards, that we can understand Romans 8 and the passage of the children of God being revealed. The groaning of creation, paddle like this. There's a book uh, on my shelf that I've read a few times. It's written in 1970. Right? It was updated recently, new cover. That's why Udo's name's on there, who comes here to speak. Um, that flow, that incredible outflow of care for creation that happened in the late 60s and the 70s, Francis Schaeffer spoke into that, and he said we should be looking now on the basis of the work of Christ, catch this, for sustained healing in every area affected by the fall. As Christians, we should be the one treating creation now as it will be treated in eternity as it'll be treated in eternity. I went by that fast. That's a big thought. So for my friends in the environmental world, for my friends here, the biblical view is the relationship between humans and creation was broken and is being restored. 
as a foretaste of what will be completed at the end. But for my friends that don't grow up with Christian language, that idea of speaking of humans as having dominion, of humans as being co-regent of the earth, sounds very peculiar. It sounds human-centered. In fact, the charge has been laid on the church for four decades now that this kind of language has caused people to use the earth harshly. Lynn White's essay back in the early 70s said it's because Christians have taught that humans are in charge of the earth that humans are destroying the earth. I would push back against that. And the first way I push back is to just look at the observed reality. Right? That humans are the only species on earth able to look across ecosystems, able to look across centuries. We're it. We have an extraordinary uh, culture, an exchange of information across the generations. We build one discovery, one achievement on top of another to even go to the moon. So there's no other species on earth like us you look at it just in species terms, yes? So it's not a human-centered role to say that humans have an extraordinary role on, church, in, on, on the planet. But I want to pull back a bit and say again from a Christian viewpoint, this isn't about humans. This isn't human-centered. And please listen again to Dick's message. I did again last night. All things were created through him and for him. The things around us were put in place to express the amazingness of our God, the glory, the creativity, the wisdom, and the ongoing care, I would say. Because I want to leave you, certainly, as I come around the corner here on this message, I want to make sure that you hear what something that I am passionate about and something I believe is supported by Scripture and has been affirmed in the church. God has not abandoned creation. Even as he has not abandoned humans, he has not abandoned creation. One place to look, and there's a lot of text up here, so pardon that, I'm going to excerpt it, um, is to look through the whole biblical story. The whole biblical story. God's commitment to creation is in there. And there's a covenant that many of us blip over. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Genesis 8 and 9. In the story of Noah, no matter how you understand that narrative and its place in history, understand this, that there was a covenant made there. There was a covenant made there, the everlasting covenant between God and living creatures of every kind on earth. And so that Noahic covenant, as it's called, uh, Aaron Chalmers has a, a, a lot of dig in on that, and I have a link to that if you want to read his paper. It's fascinating. He's talking about how that narrative is there for many reasons, and one of which is the way it's put before us is to help us know that God's activity reaches out not just to humanity, but the created animals and the earth. And that story of redemption is not just human salvation, but the renewal of creation. Yeah? But what can we possibly know about God's relationship through Jesus Christ with creation now and in the future? We don't know a lot. It's mystery. But there are clues in our passage about how God interacts with creation. And this is interesting. I, I did a lot of reading and commentary. Some of this is... My thinking, some of it is backed by commentary. See what you think, push back after. Uh, if we look at Colossians, that letter to the church in Colossae, um, they were struggling, yes, to fit Jesus into the thinking of their day, which included the idea that they were just victims of fate, in their case due to spiritual powers. 
They were taking what they had learned of Jesus and fitting it into the thinking of their day. And Paul wants them to flip that upside down and round again about. He wants them to start with Jesus. He wants them to start with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You cannot see this text, but think of it as an overall graphic. And if you have your, your, your Bibles, I want to just do a quick walkthrough here because there's an interesting and I think important structure to the text today. I know Dick and others have talked about chiasms, how a lot of times verses in the Bibles are intended to be thought of as pair leading to a point. And there is a chiasm in this passage, but I'm going to simplify a bit and just talk about parallels. This passage, and even if you can't see the words, you can see what I've done with them, and you can check in your own Bible, is really thought to be two stanzas. Maybe a hymn that was used in the church. Maybe something out of Paul's, the spirit flowing through Paul. Maybe a combination of the both. But two stanzas. A hymn. A celebration of Christ. And the two stanzas have parallel. Okay, They have parallel statements. If you look at verse 15 and verse 18... The Son is the image of the invisible God, and he is the head of the body, the church. If you look at 15, the second part of 15 and the second part of 18, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from among the dead. You can hear the echo, right? Yes? Um, and I want to say, uh, this, there's been teaching here on this, but this isn't clear or known to everybody. Firstborn, you know, more as a title, not necessarily about timing. Uh, in the ancient Near East, firstborn was not necessarily the oldest child. Firstborn is not about birth order, but more about rank. And it reminds us that the word of God, Christ, existed before Jesus in time. There's also a message in there I would submit to you about the continuity of creation. We have some thinking, some teaching that everything we see around us is going to burn up. It's all gone. It doesn't matter. But I would submit to you that God has a commitment of creation from the beginning to the end. And I'll share with that in Revelation 2. And I would suggest to you, and it's off the screen a bit, that God has already shown that, shown us that in the resurrection of Jesus. He's already shown us that in the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah? Think about who Jesus was after he ate fish, by the way. Yeah? His body showed the wounds. Maybe that was special for his disciples to help. It was a physical body, and it was something else, too. Look ahead. I think that we are down now to 16 and 19. For in him all things were created, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Parallels, parallels. And 16, again, the end of 16, it's a long verse, and 20. All things have been created through him and for him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. I would suggest to you that this incredible refocusing as an image from earth to, that we'd never seen before, this imaging that the Spirit spoke and flowed through Paul is to help us refocus on who Jesus is in his work. In creation, watch this, and in the new creation. In creation and in the new creation, with Jesus as the first Adam, the firstborn of new creation. So the idea of God sustaining and reconciling all things through Christ it raises just a few questions. Just a few, right? But some of these are the same questions, the same mysteries we have about how God interacts with us and with the church. 
how God's kingdom, God's sovereignty, interacts with a free creation. Questions about the balance between our free will and God's sovereignty. Questions about the ongoing effect of what Christians call sin, the disconnection, and evil, the not-rightness in our lives. It's observed reality in the church, wheat and tares, in the kingdom, and in creation. And most importantly, the now and not yet. We have but a foretaste of what God has in store in our lives, in the church, in creation. I want to point you, and if you want to dig into this, it's, it's quite wonderful, I think. You might want to interact with it. N.T. Wright gave a talk at Biologos last fall, uh, and he looked at the parable of the sower found in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And he looked at that parable in terms of creation because that idea of now and not yet, yes, but this idea we know is true for our lives and for the church from Jesus' parables, others' parables about the kingdom, that God's kingdom, listen, God's kingdom is breaking into this world not by force, not a one time, but through small seeds growing over time. Seeds cast widely with what seems to be wasted effort. God's grace, God's abundance, God's generosity, God's patience, God's drawing all things to himself. And the goal is a harvest of righteousness, rightness, restored relationship through Christ. So, now and not yet. If we're going to speak to friends who are not yet followers of Jesus, maybe not really connected with the idea of God at all, we have to be wise. And we have to realize that when we look deeply in creation, which many people are doing, our world is getting more environmentally literate every day, out of necessity. We have to recognize there's presence of suffering in nature, pestilence, diseases, predators, and parasites. And when we look more deeply in the observed realities of creation, does it strengthen our faith in Christ? Jesus gave us this image. The sparrows fall. Matthew 10, Luke 12. Yeah? We read the words of Jesus. Are not in, uh, in, um, yeah, in Matthew. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Luke has a, a bulk rate, five sparrows for two pennies. But same idea. Right? In that day, people bought and sold birds for food. They still do in parts of the Mediterranean. Jesus said about these sparrows, Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. The sparrows die. But they don't die unnoticed by God. And in a moment I'll tell you a thought that C.S. Lewis has about that. But again, the fall. How did it affect creation? And if you'll allow me a quick, short, I'm going to go down one of those side roads, how the fall did not affect creation. I'm taking a little risk here, so... No, you can push back. This is an amazing picture that a friend of mine took at a bald eagle nest, not too far from here, right on the Hudson. It was actually last spring, early in the nesting cycle, just that little fuzzy bobblehead in the middle, if you can see it. Right? Extraordinary. Do bald eagles bring glory to God? I asked the question because eagles' beak, eagles' eyes, eagles' feet, eagles' wings, their feathers, their tails, their very gut, their intestine, is all about eating other animals. 
So we've had a teaching and a struggle in the church about the effects of the fall and creation. And I want to share you some ideas of that conversation. Seven centuries ago, Thomas Aquinas wrote, For the nature of animals was not changed by man's sin, as if those whose nature is now to devour flesh of others would have lived on herbs, plants, the lion and the falcon. Henri Blocker writes in Our Time, Nowhere does the Bible describe the fall, watch this and see what you think, push back. Nowhere does the Bible describe the fall as a kind of second creation with the power to establish a new order of life in the universe. For it can hardly be denied that the phenomena of which we speak, predators, is part of a functioning order of the universe. These are challenging words, I know that. So I put that to you. So on the one hand, we do want to say with the psalmist, This is from Christopher Knight, another good author to explore this. We want to say with the psalmist, the lion stalking its prey is seeking its food from God. Ooh, consider that. 104 is is a good psalm to sit in about those secondary and primary causes that Dick spoke about. The lion stalking its prey is seeking its food from God. On the other hand, we want to say with the book of Isaiah that when God's ultimate purposes are fulfilled, the wolf shall lie down with the sheep and the leopard lie down with the kid from Isaiah And Isaiah may be using those images for another purpose, but in our minds, in the Christmas cards, yes? Lion lying with the lamb. And we want to use both these images because we have have this back and forth in our own hearts about God creation as we experience it. We want to say both that this is God's world and it's not yet fully God's world as it intends to be. And again, I uh, recommend Christopher Knight's book, The Groaning of Creation. Quite good. C.S. Lewis asks this about the sparrow. He says, how will God's justice redeem this, reconcile this, make this right? There is much suffering in the world now, in the natural world. I follow a God, as many of you do, who makes things right and will make things right. Good uh, way to explore that is with C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. Do eagles bring glory to God, even with a fish in their talons? So I want to give you another thought, and then we're about to wrap here. I have another video segment, there's time allowed. Um, I had a chance when I was at seminary five years ago to study at a synagogue in what's called Hevruta. And we sat down in pairs with uh, Jewish uh, theological students over uh, a period of four or five months, and we read the same scripture together and dialogued. And it was fascinating. It was amazing. Um, But in that, I learned about this Jewish midrash, this teaching of uh, long before current science. Take it for what it's worth. It's intriguing. That when we look in those verses in Genesis, and actually Christians have picked up this thought too, we have God spoke, God spoke, God spoke, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. Christians, some have understood that as a prophetic utterance, And there's a long tradition in Jewish teaching. God spoke, creating. God saw, ongoing. That God is making things good. Interesting. So what we hold in our hearts and minds about God's way with creation has an impact. And I I have to do two more moves here, if you'll bear with me. I'm watching time. In Colossians, the people in that city believed that they were merely the victims of fate. In their case, um, 
a culture that said they were victims of an uncertain fate because of spiritual beings, yes? We live in a culture. We live in a culture that says something the same. And so I want to share with you, I want to take a sample of the air, if you will, and it's not a pleasing aroma. It's the aroma of death. But I want to give you a sample. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. Many of you know this quote. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but a blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Well, there's logical fallacies in this passage and in through uh, Richard Dawkins' uh, book, Name Was Some Hubris, River Out of Eden. Um, but there is this in the air, is there not? That it's just fate, the product, accidental combination of DNA. So I would push back, you know, contra Dawkins. I would say blind, pitiless indifference or a God who sees, a God who has compassion, a God who is present within our lives, a God who has not abandoned creation or us. There's generous grace, there's purpose, and there's hope in the Christian view of creation. And this is good news to people we know. But here's a caveat that I've come to find is true. I believe people can look into the sky, they can see the glory of this day, they can see the glory of an eagle, and they can be moved in their spirit. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the screw tape letters a little bit. Just walking outside and giving God the chance to impress upon you the glory of creation, his spirit can slide in in ways it didn't before, whether you're a believer or not. So I believe creation does speak. The heavens declare the glory of God. But I would submit to you that the full understanding only comes with the spirit of God and somebody born again that there are parts of this story through Jesus that can only be perceived when somebody has taken the risk to trust Jesus and receive the Spirit of God in their life. I give you that thought. It's a troubling one, but I think true. Uh, two questions to wrap up and then our video here. Uh, N.T. Wright, a lot of people in conversation with him, he asked two questions. What's the ultimate Christian hope? And what hope is there for change, rescue, transformation, new possibilities with the world in the present. He says, you know, even to ask these two questions makes some people angry. Some insist angrily that to ask the second one, watch this, is to ignore the first one, which is the really important one, right? And others get angry because they say when people talk about resurrection and new creation, that this draws attention away from the really important and pressing matters in our world today. Do you hear that? So N.T. Wright suggests, if the Christian hope is for God's new creation, for a new earth, new heaven, new earth, and if that hope is already come to life in Jesus Christ, then there's every reason to turn those two questions together with wisdom from God. And if that's so, we find that answering one is also answering the other. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. We turn to the last chapter of the Bible where creation is sustained. 
for from him and through him and to him are all things. So I'm going to end with a video. It's a curious video. I said if we had time, I'd probably over because I'm new at this. So bear with me. You'll like this, though. Um, and we might want to take the lights down. If somebody in the back that knows how to do that wants to do that, because I think this video is a little dark for a reason. Uh, not in content, hopefully. <laughs> it's a quick two-minute clip. Um, so as I close, I said in Houston this morning, Webster Presbyterian Church is celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper. They're proclaiming, as we do here on First Sundays, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and, and Christ will come again to this earth to celebrate that full feast in the new creation. They do this every third Sunday in July because Buzz Aldrin was on the moon that day back in 1969, and Buzz Aldrin was an elder in their church. And as his brothers and sisters in Christ, they were praying. They were sitting. They were watching as the eagle landed on Tranquility Base. And they were praying and watching as Neil and then Buzz stepped out onto the Earth's surface. Moon surface. Thank you. And as he landed that on the moon as the limb pilot, um, his mind was undoubtedly back in that church because he had prepared beforehand with his pastor for how to consider this moment. We forget that they weren't sure if they would survive the moon landing. They weren't sure if they would survive the moonwalk. And when Buzz and Neil got back into the module, they just sat there for a few minutes. And then something else happened. So uh, there's a movie from Earth to the Moon, Tom Hanks, that looks at Apollo 11. And he actually told this story in that movie. It's a two-minute clip. Um, so I want to share it with you. There's something I'd like to do, if you don't mind. I cleared it with Deke. After all the grief that Frank and the others got for reading from Genesis, I can't be specific. Something I want to do. Houston, Tranquility, over. Tranquility, Houston, go ahead. Roger, this is the LAM pilot. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever or wherever they may be, to pause a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours. And to give thanks in his or her own way.
a foretaste, a foretaste of the new creation. If you want to explore these ideas further, um, three ideas. First and foremost, honor God by rejoicing in the good creation. God's ongoing, ongoing grace to all life here. We've learned that our brains respond to creation. True story. Our brains light up when we're outside. Our brains actually light up with kitten videos on the Internet. <laughs> I'm serious. There's like this little endorphin thing that happens, and that's all good. But, you know, better than the Internet. Outside to rejoice in that. We represent a foretaste of the new creation. We show who and what God cares about with our actions and our words. And this most importantly, and I, I cling to this, yeah, today? Rest in the reminder of who Jesus is, in whom all things hold together, and in whom all things will be reconciled. <laughs> 